Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Bullett, and I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com, here to discuss one of the most anticipated podcasts we've recorded in the last 10 minutes, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. What a wicked game you play to make me feel this way. Oh, man. You had to use that one? Oh, what? Uh, uh, yes. So, uh, hey, guys, uh, you know, you might remember from the fact that we had pre-roll in front of every single podcast up to this point that uh, Chris and I wanted to do a, a, a crowdsourced episode where we asked our listeners to submit to us the worst video game of all time. And uh, we didn't give any real parameters about that. We said it could be on any platform. It just had to be a video game. And uh, because of that, it meant that our listeners could literally uh, – uh, nominate any game ever made. So it's a miracle at all that we had enough votes for any particular title to have this this podcast. But we actually have the top 10 or perhaps bottom 10 
worst video games, uh, as voted on by you, the listener. So please keep in mind, this is not the opinions of Jonathan and Chris, although maybe we'll talk about some of the bad games we've played in the past, too. This isn't our opinion. This is your opinion. We're just reporting it. Yeah. Well, I I have to say that uh, one one person did write in and ask us why we would bother recording an episode on this. And uh, the simple answer is because it's fun yeah. for us. This was actually really a lot of fun. Uh, so. It was a lot of work because we had to collect votes from multiple sources. We co- collected votes from email, Facebook, Twitter, and people left votes on my Google Plus account, too. So... Um, I actually did separate out all the votes in a big spreadsheet so I knew how many votes came in from which uh, uh, particular source. And that, that actually was kind of interesting, too, just to see you know what our listeners prefer to use in order to, to get information to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty fascinating. That was not my intent, by the way, when I came. I came up with this idea on the spur of the moment and sprung it on Chris just before we started recording. And Chris was like, do I have to do I have to record all the votes? I said no. He says, "All right, let's do it." <laughs> so, you know, I'm easy like that. Let's uh let's start off with uh, uh what would be number 10, but actually it was a tie for ninth place. So, the first two games we're going to talk about received the same number of votes, and the first one that we we're going to talk about is Dragon's Lair, the arcade game specifically. Hmm. So, hmm. for those of you who uh who missed out on the early 80s and the great arcade uh, culture of the early 80s. You may not be too familiar with this game, but it was groundbreaking. Yeah, uh, it, it was. was. It was a, a an innovative way of presenting a video game that had not been attempted before Dragon's Lair. Yep. Yeah. Previously, we were talking about the the different well the difference in in vector and raster graphics and and you know there was. There were blocky graphics for the most part at yeah. the time. And they had um, limited animation. Limited sound. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but Dragon's Lair actually featured, uh, animation from one of the industry giant animators, Don Bluth. Yeah. Former Disney animator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who has gone on to, you know, with his own company to do many, many other titles. In fact, I, I have a Don Bluth title on my iPad. Yeah. Which one? The new version of Tapper. Oh, it features know. Don Bluth artwork. See, because uh, he also, you may know some of his work from from movies like uh, uh, the Secrets of the Secret of Nim. Yes, and um, the Land Before Time series. Land Before Time it was uh, was it uh, the Fievel movies too? Yes, um, those were Don Bluth films. Mm-hmm. So somewhere out there. Yes, thank you. So Dragon's Lair was uh, featured animation from Don Bluth, and it was published by Cinematronics. Yeah, yeah, but 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 how you might yeah, say exactly is like, this great leap in graphics and sound because the sound was awesome too. How yeah, how is that possible? Because you know you're looking at other games like Donkey Kong, which you know I loved Donkey Kong, but you would not call the graphics uh, advanced or state of the art. Well, for the time they were, but not now. But you, I yeah, mean, Dragon's but, Lair but now to Dragon's still Lair looks beautiful. Is crazy, yeah. Well, they they accomplished this by using the LaserDisc video format, which we've talked about before. So the entire game was on LaserDisc. And uh, there was an actual LaserDisc player inside the cabinet of this arcade game. Now, the fact that there it was on LaserDisc was both its its biggest strength and its biggest weakness. Yes. The weakness is that you couldn't create too much interactivity for the player and the game. Uh, the 
you know, you, you couldn't have complete control over the main character who, do you remember the guy's name? Dirk the Daring. Yes. And he was rescuing a uh, princess Daphne mm-hmm. from a dragon named Singe. And so you, you couldn't just control Dirk the Daring. You couldn't just make him run around and jump and stuff. Instead, what you would do is you would initiate a video sequence because again, this is recorded on Laserdisc. There's only so many variations of Dirk's movements that can be recorded on a single Laserdisc. Yeah. So what your input into the arcade machine would translate to is, was that the correct button to press or direction on the joystick to push in order to trigger the next sequence to further the storyline? Yeah. <clears throat> so you, for example, you might be, uh, having to jump and you did have to jump at one point. And if you, you know, move up, that might be the right thing to do. If you move left, you die. Right. If you do nothing, you die. die. If you, if you push the sword button, you die. If yes. you push, yeah. So in other words, there'd be one correct response to a particular moment in the story. And sometimes, yes. uh, there'd be like a little flash that would indicate this is when you do something. So for a lot of the game, you're, you're just watching. Yes. You're just, you're, you're watching a movie and then occasionally in the movie, there's a moment where you have a chance to put in an input. And if you put in the wrong one, the movie's over. And so that was probably what caused a lot of people to vote for Dragon's Lair is that it almost feels like less of a game and more of a film. And it's just a film that you don't get to see the end of it unless you happen to shift in your seat at just the right moment. Mm-hmm. So the film will continue. And also I would like to point out this was one of the first games I can remember that cost two credits or 50 cents to play. Yep, yep. And also remember that a lot of them had two monitors because mm-hmm. they were so popular that people would try and gather and cram around the the uh, system because if someone knew how to play it, if someone had memorized the sequence of movements they had to do to get through a particular part of the game, you know, most people didn't have the time or energy or change to learn all that. So they they just like to watch the 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 game because again it was like a movie uh, I saw a lot of arcades that would put a second monitor that was mounted on the top of the cabinet so that you could see what was going on without having to be right up on whoever's playing the game so anyway that was uh, tied for ninth place uh, and the other one was an, an, a game on the Nintendo Entertainment System mm-hmm. which was Back to the Future and I have never played this because I didn't own an NES. I, but from what I read, we're going from beautiful graphics to and, and, not po- so and sort of poor gameplay to horrible graphics and poor, and poor gameplay. gameplay. Yeah. The, uh, Back to the Future is just one example of a licensed title. And by licensed, I mean it's something that already existed that a video game publisher uh, purchases a license from the license owner to be able to create a game based on that and as far as Back to the Future goes, the the basis was really pretty uh, difficult to spot, especially in that first stage. Like in the very first stage, you are uh, going down a street. And the way the view is, it's an over-the-head view. Um, the street is laid out so that the top of the screen is where you're you're headed to. The bottom of the screen is where you are. And you're moving your your character around, Marty McFly. You're moving Marty McFly down the street. You're trying to avoid enemies and pick up little alarm clocks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's only by picking up enough alarm clocks that you're allowed to move to the next stage. 
And so you're also, you also have a timer. So if you don't pick up enough alarm clocks within the time limit, then you lose. If you get hit by an enemy, you lose. If you run into an obstacle, you lose. Um, you would eventually be able to pick up a bowling ball, which would let you shoot enemies. Cause of course you remember that great scene in Back to the Future where Marty McFly picked up a bowling ball and then shot someone with it. Um, who can forget that scene that never happened? Uh, and then you could also get, a skateboard, which at least that was featured in the film. Yeah. But with a skateboard, what that would mean is that you would move through the, the, <laughs> you would move through the level faster, which meant the poor gameplay became excruciatingly poor gameplay because you're going so fast you can't even react. Um, and then if you got through that, you would hit a mini game. Mm-hmm. And some of the mini games included a diner stage where you're behind a counter and Biff and his bullies are coming in after you and you have to throw milkshakes at them to stop them. But it was really hard to line up your character so that you were throwing the milkshake at the right plane in order to hit the enemy. Mm-hmm. Like the enemy's coming at you from the left side of the screen. You're on the right side of the screen. You've got a bar between you and the enemy. You just have to figure out exactly where like vertically you need to align yourself. And you, you'd be like, Oh, that's clearly, that's it. That's, that's the sweet spot. And you push the button and the milkshake flies like three feet over the, the bully's head and he reaches the, the bar and throws you against the wall. Um, it was a little rough. And then there was another stage where you had to block kisses. That were sent to you from Lorraine. Because you're playing Marty McFly. Lorraine right. is Marty's mother. Right. You know, he's back in time and he's met the teenage version of his mom. And uh, so you would have to block her kisses to you. And then there was another one where you had to position a guitar just right so that you were playing uh, music so that Lorraine and George, your, your mom and dad, mm-hmm. would actually kiss. And then the very final stage involved driving the DeLorean, the time travel device, through the street at night, dodging enemies, dodging obstacles, trying to get up to 88 miles per hour. Um, it looked awful. Oh, and Bob Gale, who was a screenwriter for Back to the Future, mm-hmm. called it one of the worst games ever made. Heavy. Yeah. yeah. Why do people keep saying that? Is there some problem with gravity in the future? <laughs> so that moves us up to our eighth worst mm-hmm. game. Do you want to unveil what this one is? Well, it, it certainly has a tough road to hoe. Yes, it does. But it is extremely popular. It's uh, something you may have seen once or twice on Facebook, at least. Once or twice a minute on Facebook. <laughs> Only if you follow uh, people who play this. And how could you not? It's Farmville. From Zynga. Yes. Now, Farmville's had a lot of criticism directed toward it. Uh, it's one of those games that's uh, uh, it's a freemium Game, Yes, it and, is. And that means that you can play the game for free. But if you want to have the most advantageous stuff in the game, you have to pay real money to get it, um, And so, which is a perfectly valid business plan. You know, yeah. there's no re- – I'm not – I don't want to say that that's a bad thing to do. I mean people should be compensated for the work they do in order for them to make more work. Otherwise, no one has any incentive to do anything, you know. Well – you know, it's it's got millions of fans. Yes. Um, something like I, I once heard a statistic that something like ten percent of all people who use Facebook play this, mm-hmm. and and I have. So you know, I've played I played it in some of the other Zynga games, but I don't. It, it's funny though. I don't think of it as a game. I think of it as more of a toy because there's no objective that you're trying to accomplish to win the game. Yeah. Basically, you're trying to. If you've never seen or or played it, um, the the point is to grow your farm. So, you know, at, at some point you, you, uh, 
add little plots of land on which you can grow your crops. And you can choose which crops to grow. Um, you know, each time you plant something, you have several choices to, you know, you could say corn or tomatoes or, you know, you know, potatoes or something else. Um, and each crop costs a certain amount of money in your, you know, your fake gold money. Right. Actually, it's their, their dollars, I think. Farm Um, coins. Farm coins. And, uh, you also, it's been a while since I played. And, uh, each crop takes a certain amount of time to grow. And if you leave the game for more than that amount of time, a reasonable amount of time, once it's grown, the crop will wither and die. So the point is too, I mean, it's not just crops. You also add, you know, a fence around your, your garden and you add a farmhouse and what kind do you want? And, you know, bales of hay. And you basically, you, you, uh, add in size, to the farm and you add different plots and you upgrade your stuff. And, and there's also a social factor where you can interact yeah. with your friends' farms and they can interact with yours, which is why you see like all these mm-hmm. notifications pop up on Facebook until you get fed up with it and block them. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can visit your friend's farm and fertilize their crops so they grow faster or unwither them when they've yeah, right. gone bad you can, you and can stuff help like them that. Out. Yeah. You can send them gifts and they can send you gifts and that, that can be kind of fun. But the thing is, it's like Jonathan pointed out, uh, Zynga is really hoping that you'll invest some actual cash into this. And you can get uh, certain kinds of crops or certain kinds of decorations for your farm if you fork over some real coin. Um, and that's kind of annoying for people like me who are cheap and don't want to give them any money. And the thing is, at a certain point, the game or software toy, is like, like I said, I don't like to call it, is sort of semi-unplayable because... There's a point at which everything to make it fun, you really need to give them money for. Right. And it really doesn't change. And, and there's a point at which you go, yeah, you know, I really don't want to do this anymore. And the game also encourages you to try and loop your friends into the game. Well, so, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's probably – I'm guessing that's why people voted for it because it feels yeah. almost invasive um, when you're on Facebook unless you, you go so far as to block it. And we had other Facebook – Games like games that are similar to this uh, nominated as well, but Farmville was the one that actually got the most votes. And yeah. um, also, Zing has been accused of sort of copying uh, yes. an earlier game called Farm Town. Yes, that mm-hmm. had very similar game mechanics. Some people would say similarity to the point of identity, but <laughs> well, this this model has uh, has extended across Facebook and in other venues as well. I mean, there are some iPad games um, that I've you know, tried out on my tablet that basically they're the same kinds of things. Add your friends. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far in this game. Yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know anybody else who's playing this. Plus, I don't want to spam everybody with right. messages Send out an game. email blast saying, like, join my game. Yeah. I mean, if Jonathan's playing and I'm playing, then yeah, I'll send Jonathan a note. Hey, send me a free chicken. Right. But I don't want to send that to everybody on my list because, you know, it's annoying. Yeah, that'd be foul play. Yes, it would. So let's move on to our next the yolks on me nomination. Now this this next nomination is interesting because it's a terrible, terrible game that was designed to be a, a terrible, terrible, terrible game. game, and it's called Desert Bus. Now Desert Bus was actually a mini game that was part of a larger package of games for a uh, a product that never saw full production. It was for the Sega CD system. Mm-hmm. Gosh. I barely remember that. The whole system was a failure, not yeah. just this game. Um, but it was a mini game that was included in Penn & Teller's Smoke and Mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a lot of the stuff that was in Penn and Teller's smoke and mirrors ended up being used in other Penn and Teller products, like uh, cruel tricks for dear friends and things like that. Yeah. But this one idea, uh, which supposedly came from Eddie Gorodetsky, who is a, a producer in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, this one idea was to create a, an an ultra realistic, and by that I mean boring, game in which you drive a bus from Tucson, Arizona to Las Vegas, Nevada in real time, and the bus's top speed is around 45 miles per hour, and there's no scenery, there's there's no traffic, there are no passengers on the bus. It's just you driving this bus to Las Vegas, and uh, in real time, that takes, by the way, about eight hours. And if you get all the way to Las Vegas, you get a point, and then you have to drive back. But but what happens if you need to you know stop and eat dinner or go to the bathroom? Uh, well, the game does not have a pause function, so the time would just keep going. I mean, also, the the bus. Uh, you might say, why don't you just set it up so that the bus drives automatically? Like you know, just it put something on the up arrow key on the gas pedal. Yeah. Uh, well, the bus also has a problem with its suspension, <laughs> and it pulls to the right, so. You have to con- constantly adjust the bus so that it will it'll be on the road. Now there is a port of this game on the web. You can play a web-based version of Desert Bus if you want to. Now you might ask, why would you want to? Well, some of it's just kind of like grousing slash bragging rights that you know you actually bothered to take eight hours of your life and get this virtual bus from Tucson to Las Vegas, but. Uh, Another group called Loading Ready Run mm-hmm. had an interesting idea. Um, that's a, a four-person comedy group. And they decided to hold a desert bus marathon session as a fundraising effort to raise money for the charity Child, Child's Play. Uh, Child's Play is a charity that uh, gets a lot of attention, uh, particularly around Penny Arcade Expo or PAX, because the PAX guys also hold um, uh, auctions for Child's Play. And uh, it's it's providing video games and other kinds of stuff like that to kids who are in hospitals and who are recovering or are suffering from serious illnesses and conditions. As a a nice charity to do something nice for the kids, right? Mm-hmm. So these four members of Loading Ready Run took shifts at driving the uh, the desert bus. Um, they. Ended up driving for more than four and a half days mm-hmm. <laughs> the first time, which was in 2007. Uh, they drove for around four and a half days and they scored six points <laughs> in that four and a half days driving the bus back and forth. Uh, and since then, they've held the marathon several more times and have raised more than $400,000 collectively. That's impressive. Yeah, for Child's Play, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the game is online, so if you just do a search for Desert Bus, you can find a web-based version of this game and play it yourself, should you hate yourself. Well, apparently our number six uh, game is also a game for people who are into really not happy driving experiences. Oh my gosh, this game is probably... It's amazing to me that this game was ever released because it is it is as unfinished a game as I have ever seen. And I've seen the reviews for this game, like I've seen video reviews of this game that show the problems. And it's you can't believe that such a product was ever released to the public. But, uh, I guess we should say what it is. Well, racing games are so popular, and you know that you can race just about anything 
in in all kinds of video games. So sure. you would imagine that one that would allow you to race tractor trailers would be fun, but big rigs over the road racing for the PC for the PC isn't. Yeah, it was a 2003 third person racing game. So you're outside the truck looking at the truck. Yeah. And sort of, uh, and let's, if you could call it that. let's see if we can figure out where some of the problems of this game uh, may reside, shall we? Well, it's a racing game in which you don't really race anyone else, right? Well, well, first, the first problem is that it was billed as a game where the object was that you were transporting illegal goods uh, and you were being chased by police. So it was billed as a game where you had to drive fast and evade the cops. What uh, cops? Right. So when you actually get the game, it turns out there's nothing – it has nothing to do with any of that. Instead, it was supposed to be, uh, at least once you got the game going, it was supposed to be a racing game where you're racing against other competitors. But um, the game developer never actually bothered to put artificial intelligence competitors in there, so they, they never leave the starting line. It's a race where – all the other people racing don't do anything. They mm-hmm. just sit there. So you're, you're running and, and they're behind you and they don't do anything. Um, beyond that, though, it gets worse than that. Well, what about the realistic physics? Yeah, there weren't any. Um, you could drive over anything. Like driving on the road or driving off the road or driving through a building, none of that made any difference. You you traveled at the same speed, unless you were backing up, in which case you would accelerate infinitely <laughs> until you let off the uh, the the reverse button. Yeah, I, I understand. Well, again, I didn't play this one, but I understand, too, that stopping was hyper-realistic, too. Like if you had perfect brakes, you just let up on the accelerator and you stop. Yeah, exactly. You just go to go to yeah, a complete stop. Because trucks do that. There, yeah, there's there's no sense of momentum or inertia. Uh, you just the universe would 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 halt around you. Um, you could drive off the edge of the map and into gray nothingness. So it made it kind of a metaphysical philosophical game at that point. I've done that before. And we've known plenty of metaphysical philosophical truck drivers, and that's really not a dig. We really do know quite a few of them. Um, but yeah, it was just uh, you know no collision detection to speak of. Uh, uh, there were five tracks listed in the game. Only four of them were playable. I don't know how that would be a disappointment considering how horrible the game was. Like, oh, great. You mean I can't play this other terrible track that I would never love? <laughs> and uh, X plays Morgan Webb. She she refused to rate this game <laughs> because X play has a rating system of one to five stars. Mm-hmm. There's no zero. Oh, there's stars. no zero. And she refused to even give it one star, so she would not review it. All right, she then. played it, <laughs> she just wouldn't give it a review. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty bad. So that was a that was a 2003 game, but we're going to go a little further back for our next one, right? Right. Yeah, this is a a, a port of a very popular arcade game, um, and for uh, and this is one I've played back so, on when I had an Atari. Well, actually, I still have an Atari 2600 when I had it hooked up to yeah. the TV. But I didn't actually own this one. I did. Um, so shall we clue yeah. people in? Yeah, this is fifth place, by the way, for those of you keeping count. So in fifth place is... Pac-Man. Yeah, Pac-Man. So The port of the Namco Giant. It's often called the worst coin-op port ever. Donkey Kong wasn't great. Uh, no, I'm not, uh, I don't disagree. <laughs> but... Um, no, but, Pac-Man was t- honestly it was terrible. Yeah, at least Donkey Kong remotely resembled the game that it was based that's, on. Yeah, that's true. Pac-Man. Some people have said that if it had not been called Pac-Man, 
if it if it hadn't been referred to as that and it had a slightly different appearance for the the, the character that you play, mm-hmm. that people probably wouldn't be quite so hard on it because the puzzle the the mazes were a little challenging to get through, mm-hmm. and it, it, you know the gameplay worked properly. Like you know you'd press More left on the joystick and Pac Man would, would go left. Mm-hmm. You know it wasn't like you know Big Rigs what we just talked about. That was a game that was just pure broken. Yeah, right. There was no literally no way to play that game. It ended up being like a weird sandbox game, but it wasn't intended to be one. Mm-hmm. Pac-Man played the way it was supposed to, more or less. It's just that it was such a poor translation of what of a game that people were really familiar with that it was it could be nothing more than a disappointment to anyone who bought it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Pac-Man is one of the titles that people often will use as an example when they talk about why the video game industry collapsed in 1983 in North America. Well, they made so many copies of this, anticipating that people would want to play it at home, but when they actually got their hands on it and moved... I mean, Pac-Man is a game where you actually need reflexes and you need to pay attention to what's going on, and Pac-Man on the 2600 moved so much more slowly, Mm -hmm. and the graphics were poor. The sound wasn't as good. I remember when it uh, it came out for the Atari 5200 and it looked so much better except the 5200 has a non-centering joystick which makes playing in a four-direction maze very, very difficult. So yeah. that just didn't help anything. It was just it was such a huge flop at home. Right, yeah. It was, it was a terrible, terrible game and uh, I completely agree with this being on, on a list for, for oh, yeah. bad video games because yeah. it you know, even if you even if you say that the gameplay was okay, the effect it had on the industry was so terrible that by definition it's a bad video game because it helped bring the industry to its knees in 1983. And it 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 wouldn't be until Nintendo launched the NES in North America that we would see a recovery of that market. Meh. Um, so now next we have a tie for third place. You know, normally we go from fifth to fourth, but we have uh, the same number of votes came in. For our, our third and fourth place, so tie for third. And these two are more modern. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we did an entire episode <laughs> about one of these. Duke Nukem Forever. Oh, yeah. Now, we did do a full episode about Duke Nukem Forever, so we're not going to spend too much time right now talking about it. Because, uh, now, granted, when we did the episode, it was before the game had come out. Hotly anticipated for a decade. More than a decade. Yeah, it was rounding off. Yeah, it was originally announced as a title for the PC. It was a a a sequel to Duke Nukem 3D. Um, it was originally announced in 1997, but it didn't launch until 2011. Yeah, that's a long time for to wait for a video game, right? I mean, it got vaporware awards right up there with Deus Ex. Yeah, Wired gave it the vaporware of the year award. Multiple years in a row. In fact, it it got discontinued from the voting because... And then it was brought back. Because it wasn't just that it was vaporware. It was that just when you were prepared to say Duke Nukem Forever was never going to come out, there would be some sort of rumble from 3D Realms that would say, no, 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 it's really going to come out. And then you'd have to say, well, now we have to put it back on the list because... You know, we were yeah. ready to write it off forever, but they say it's coming out. So, of course, they the rights to the game passed into other people's hands. Yeah, and they once, said, we'll once do 3D it. Realms collapsed, yeah. And um, they did. Yeah, they, they finished it. Um, hmm. They did not receive wide acclaim when it launched. A lot of people panned this game, which, of course, explains why it it's on our list and how many people voted for it. Um, 
a lot of the criticisms about the game said that it was it just looked dated. It was it was like a first person shooter designed for the late nineties. You know, it it didn't have the elements that you expect in a first person shooter today. Right. And uh that even even for one in the nineties it wouldn't have been great because like in the nineties you would have a lot of fast paced action and you would have a ton of different weapons at your disposal. Right. Duke Nukem Forever was more plodding and uh um well, I, there's no way for me to word this in a way that's not negative. It was a slow, slow game. It could be boring at times. It could be ages between one encounter with an enemy and another. And you could only carry two weapons at a time. So it took away some of the stuff that made those games in the 90s so much fun and uh, and didn't replace it with anything better. And also the juvenile humor in the Duke Nukem series, I think it may have worn a little thin. It's just people don't find it as amusing mm-hmm. as it used to be, mm-hmm. partially because we've had other games come out that have much more biting satire and uh, and, you know, they're they're just as edgy as Duke Nukem was, but they are more relevant. Mm-hmm. Like the Grand Theft Auto series is known for its dark humor. The Fallout 3 series or the Fallout series in general is known for its dark humor. Mm-hmm. And so you get to Duke Nukem and you're just like, well, this feels like. You're in a, uh, you know, uh, you're in a, a locker room with a bunch of uh, really, really immature guys, mm-hmm. and that that's the level of humor, and it just never gets above that. And so I think all of those things contributed to it being ranked on our list. Mm-hmm. But what about our next game that's also tied for third place? Well, you'd think that a game written by um, an Oxford professor of bioethics might actually rank up there, but uh, Bennett Foddy's game QWOP, or Co-op, um, got a lot of negative votes. I actually, I saw this profiled in Wired before I ever tried to play it. Yeah, um, There's a neat little article about him, uh, and I do mean little. It's very short. Um, but basically, in this game, you are using the keys QWOP, hence the name, to move the legs of a runner on a track. Yeah, a runner named Quop mm-hmm. for a 100-meter dash. And that's, that's important to know. It's, an, it's supposed to be an Olympic runner on the 100-meter dash, and the Q and W keys control the runner's thighs, mm-hmm. and the O and P keys control the runner's calves. And you're supposed to try and coordinate these movements in such a way as to propel the runner down the 100 meters. By the way, this runner has apparently no upper body control whatsoever. <laughs> and if, if the runner gets even a little bit off balance, it's time to tip over. And, and I have seen so many people play this game and get negative <laughs> scores because they would just start tipping backwards almost instantaneously. And as soon as you touch the ground, that's where your, that's, that's your score. Yeah. And, uh, and keep in mind, it's a 100-meter dash. Um, I've never seen anyone complete this in fewer than 20 minutes. But um, uh, the furthest I've gotten is 12.8 meters. Didn't you send me a video of somebody who'd finished it in about four minutes? I think they sped it up. Because oh, what, okay. they, what they ended up doing was they used it so that they made Quop do a split. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of jimmied it <laughs> until he finally – like he literally inched – down a hundred meters. And, and at 50 meters, by the way, you are, you are, you encounter your first obstacle, a mm-hmm. hurdle. <laughs> and at a hundred meters, there's a long jump, but you can go through the hurdle. Like you don't have to, you don't have to actually jump the hurdle. You can keep That's going as, as long as you're able to land on your feet or however you're getting across. Um, you can, you can pretty much ignore the hurdle and the long jump is completely, uh, um, optional. 
Yeah, so if you just have to cross that finish line. If you're if your experience with video game uh running is track and field from the 1980s yeah. where you just had to pound buttons as fast as you could, um you will not win at this game. No, this game is this game is really 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 hard, which I think is why it got a lot of votes. It's it's frustrating and it seems it seems after you've played it for about a minute, it seems completely pointless. Oh, we should say it's web-based. Yeah. It's a web-based game, so you can find it on Foddy's site. He he wrote this in 2008, and it's still up. So if you want to give it a shot, uh, go ahead. It's it's kind of and it's kind of fun, and it also gives you an idea of how well your brain is controlling your walking movements. Because if you were trying to walk with your, you know, control your own legs with your fingers, you yeah. I don't know that I would do yeah, any better. It, but it takes a lot of coordination to yeah. be able to like. Even when I got 12.8 meters, it was mostly luck. Yeah. I was timing it just right, but even as I was playing, I was like, ooh, I should have, I should have let up on the calf muscle and continued on the thigh muscle for a split second longer and I would have been able to get a little yeah. further. I can never do that when I'm actually playing. Like when yeah. I'm actually playing, I'm like, press these two buttons, now switch to these two buttons, now switch back to those two buttons, and that's, that's, my tactic. Maybe, which is probably why I've only gotten 12.8 meters in. Maybe you should get onto a GURP. Oh yeah, I've played which, that one too. Which is his mountain climbing game, and apparently it's very, very similar. It's actually that one I can play really well. I've gotten pretty far in GURP. Um, and that one makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I've got better coordination with that one. But the uh, but yeah, Quop is really hard. So um, you know who's really good at controlling their legs? Who's that? But someone who doesn't this, have to use them. Is this going into our second place? Yes, because I mean, you know, if you can fly, yeah. Then, Why would you need to use your legs? Yes. I'm talking about our second place, Superman, the new Superman Adventures. Yeah. Also known that, as Superman 64 yeah, for that the wasn't Nintendo of, 64. It wasn't its official name. Right. It's good that it wasn't Superman, the new Batman Adventures. That, that would, would be confusing. really confusing. Yeah. Or like Superman, Not, My Little Pony. That, that would have <laughs> been weird. That if... <laughs> Might have been a better game then, though. Yeah. Uh, this was released in 1999 for the Nintendo 64. And probably shouldn't have been. And again, this we're talking about licensed character. You know, we talked about with Back to the Future. They're, we're going to make some money. The history of licensed characters, actually, we're going to get to that again very shortly. The history of licensed characters in video games is a pretty ugly one. There are a few games that stand out as being remarkable, like truly good games that use licensed characters. But... The general rule of thumb is that if it's a licensed character game, it's it, it's got a good the, the odds are against it, right? Just based on the number of bad games that use licensed characters. Now there are other games like you know Arkham Asylum, which are fun. I mean that's a Batman game and that's a lot of fun. Well, I thought you were going to bring up uh, Goldeneye. Goldeneye, fantastic! One of the best games ever made. Also made for the Nintendo 64. One of the top first-person shooter games uh, of that era. Fantastic game. Superman, no, not so much. Uh, so the story behind this game, the actual story in the game, that is, is that you play the part of Superman. Mm-hmm. Who has been tricked, as he often is, by Lex Luthor to enter into a virtual representation of Metropolis. And you have to complete these different tasks and puzzles that Lex sets up for you in order to escape and beat the tar out of him. Tank, I need an exit. Yeah. So the first test of your skills involves flying through a series of hoops. 
Because Superman often has to that's, do that. Yeah. I, I remember his that's a epic battle with Doomsday where he had to fly through about 14 hoops before def- – no, that doesn't make any sense. And I jump through hoops every day. After that, you would, might have to pick up a car and throw it because, again – that's what Superman would do in Metropolis is that, you know, you're thinking like you're driving down with your family. You're having a nice day out. You might be going to go see the Metropolis Museum of Art. And the mm-hmm. next thing you know, some jerk has just flown over, picked up your car and thrown it 40 blocks. Yep. Yeah, that's that'll ruin your whole day. <laughs> but anyway, so you would also have to do things like fight famous Superman villains. But the controls were really sluggish. The gameplay was incredibly repetitive. And it has been ranked as one of the worst video games of all time, not just by our listeners, but by other publications. I mean, it has multiple, I hesitate to use the word awards, but multiple notifications of it being the worst, one of the worst video games. And in fact, in one uh, ranking I saw, it was ranked as the number one and our number one was number two. Mm -hmm. So now I guess we should move on to what our listeners have voted. And I'm sure you've already guessed it. Based upon what has already been listed, but what your, our listeners have voted as the worst video game of all time. And I should point out, this received 29% of the overall votes we received. And keep in mind, you could nominate any title at all. And, and I, I'm, I have a, a small concern that because we've mentioned it as a terrible game that, that you all thought that we were coaching you. To vote for this title. Yeah, we did. We have talked about this game being a terrible game before, but when, when we actually asked for votes, I made sure we didn't mention any particular title. Yeah. I didn't want to change anyone's mind or put in a suggestion. I'm sure that happened anyway, uh, based upon some of the co- comments and everything, but our worst video game is of all time. Chris, do the honors. E.T. The Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600. A 1982 game published by Atari. In about 10 minutes. Yeah. So keep in mind that Atari went the route where they were allowing all sorts of developers to create games for the Atari 2600. It didn't have to be vetted through Atari. Yeah, it's not like a Nintendo does. Right, Nintendo had the whole certification process. Mm -hmm. Atari did not. But this, there's no excuse here. Because Atari was the publisher behind this game in the first place. Yes. Uh, yeah. So in this game, you take the role of E.T., the mm-hmm. extraterrestrial from the beloved Steven Spielberg documentary of the same name. And um, your task was to locate three pieces of an interstellar telephone so that you could uh, assemble oh. them mm-hmm. and phone home which would summon a spaceship that would rescue you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did this just like in the movie. I mean, we all remember that scene in the movie where E.T. had to walk into a field of pits, raise his head up, look for the flash and descend into the pit to retrieve a piece of the interstellar phone. I mean, you remember that scene, right? It's probably no, no, that scene did not exist. But in the game, you would walk into one of the screens. Actually, a couple of the screens would have several pits on the screen. You push a button, which would pits. Which would raise E.T.'s head and he would do a, a, a sound like this. And then one, if you were lucky, one of the pits would flash, which would indicate that one of the pieces of the phone was in that pit. And you would walk over to the pit, fall in, mm-hmm. pick up the piece of phone, and then you would press the button, which would raise E.T.'s head. And you would levitate up the pit. Now, most of the game is an overhead view, but when you were in a pit, it was a side view, like a cutout yes. view. Mm-hmm. 
and you would you would levitate to the top of the pit and then immediately fall in again because it was really hard that once you got to the top of the pit it, the the screen would change so that you were looking at the overhead view again yep. and you had to manipulate ET all over to the edge of the pit so that you were on the ground again mm-hmm. right so you're on, you go from a side view to an overhead view and i can't tell you how many times i fell down a pit over and over and over again cuz i thought i was clear but and every time you fall and every time you use your powers you use up energy you have a limited amount of energy and after you use it all up you die yeah well you have to find dots i mean reese's pieces reese's pieces yeah the little square pixel which would be re- represent one reese's pieces and you would uh, eat that and that would give you a little more energy they would also had doctors who would walk around and if they found you they'd pick you up and move you to a different screen and you would lose a little time or worse you would find an FBI guy and he would chase you down and if he touched you he would take away your phone and you had to start over again <laughs> And so you would do this over and over again until you had the three pieces of phone. Then you could go to one part of the the game, the one section where there's an icon on the screen that tells you you can make your phone call here. And you had to find it because it wasn't always in the same place. You would make your phone call. And then you had to make it to a different screen where the spaceship would actually land because apparently you can't make a phone call at the landing site. Oh, no, that'd be too easy. So then you had to make your way to the other screen and get in the the little spaceship and you would then start the game over at the same difficulty level immediately. And this game was awful. Terrible. Terrible game. So bad – that people – the word got out about how disappointing this game was that people stopped buying it. And uh, Atari had produced thousands of cartridges because the movie was so successful. Yep. So Atari goes out and makes thousands and thousands of copies of E.T. The reviews come in. People hate it. Copies go unsold. Eventually, stores start to send their unsold copies of E.T. back to Atari and Atari – grinds them up and then trucks them out into New Mexico and buries them. You know, um, you know what they did with that? What's that? They used it to pave a road and then you drive this bus. Yeah, right. Across the desert. And you get one point every time you run over E.T. Exactly. Yeah, it was. Um, and then you fall in a pit. And then, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> physics in that game are terrible. But anyway, yeah, so that was, this was again, just like Pac-Man. This is another one of those games that was pointed to as being one of the reasons the video game industry crashed in 1983. Now, you know, a lot of the games that came out for the Atari 2600 were these games made by independent developers that were just terrible. Yeah. But, it was because, you know, the market was flooded with terrible games and Atari was not helping itself out by publishing some of them itself. Yeah, I, I had some of those games, too. Yeah. And I had, and you know, I've mentioned it before. I was actually surprised that nobody voted for the Sword Quest series. But my guess is that Atari was in such decline that none of our listeners actually bought that but me. Yeah. Since they didn't even finish the last game. Uh, on the series, but, uh, we didn't, uh, a couple people did vote for some games that were patently offensive. Uh, we yeah. didn't mention that before, and, right. and we didn't, we weren't including those sp- specifically because we were talking about games that were just 
horrible games, not yeah, they games were, that were offensive yeah, games. These were games that were meant to be enjoyable. They 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 didn't have an ulterior motive, right? Right. The, there those, are some of those too, but yeah, the games that had an ulterior motive, where the whole part, purpose was to perpetuate hatred or to make a joke out of uh, inhumane acts, mm-hmm. we didn't include those because, really, I mean, first of all, I refuse to give them any more publicity than they've already had. Right. And second of all, I I was. The spirit of the thing was to think of games that were meant to be enjoyable, fun games that just weren't for yeah. one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the really quickly because we're we've, we're already Over. getting pretty far up there. But we have to talk about some of the other games that got on uh, got some votes that I was surprised didn't get more votes. But again, since you had every single game open to you, mm-hmm. you know, one of those was Aquaman Battle for Atlantis. <laughs> This game is nigh unplayable. It again had one of the worst reviews ever. Xplay did an amazing, hysterical review of this game. Um, I think they called it like Power of the Mullet or something like that in their, in their review. But it was terrible. Mm. And games that, um, were specifically designed to be marketing tools for, for brands. Mm-hmm. So stuff like, I actually had the Kool-Aid game for the Atari 2600. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And then they had the the Avoid the Noid game for Domino's. Yes. There were all the Burger King games that came out for the Xbox. Yeah. Uh, There was a McDonald's game as well. We got got votes for those, but they were – it was usually like one, one yeah, like one vote for one of those titles. So there wasn't a lot of, but I think that that deserves mention. Games that are specifically just marketing ploys tend to get hate on, hated by gamers. Yeah. Which, you know, that kind of makes sense. Like gamers want a game that was designed just to create enjoyment, be fun and challenging. Not a game that's designed to make you want to go out and buy a pizza. Teenage Mutant mm. Ninja Turtles also falls into that category. Pizza. No, I'm just kidding. So, and then there were some of the games that were on the list that we we were a little surprised to see votes for. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, I think it's vo- people were voting on games that either they're just tired of seeing, or they don't. They are not particularly good at that game, and they find it frustrating. And and other people like it, and that's why they hate it because mm-hmm. it's a game that they personally just don't get. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those titles include things like Angry Birds, which yeah. I think probably that's a saturation thing, right? It's just because it's everywhere. People are going to be tired of it. Well, I think that was Farmville too. Yeah, uh, We Fit. We Fit. I don't even think of We Fit as a game. Yeah, not you know, really. So that's why I didn't really like that. That's not really a game so much. I mean, there's a game element to it, but it's yes. not. I don't call it a game. Um, Halo, which I think a lot of people would argue is one of the better first-person shooters for a console system. Keeping in mind that PC-based first-person shooters are much more sophisticated and require a totally different skill set than a console one. Uh, I've heard computer first-person shooter players refer to console first-person shooters as kind of dumbing down the whole thing. And I kind of get that, but it's it's a different, you know, a kind of different mode. And I personally love the Halo series. I can see your Halo. Thank you. Uh, Pitfall for the Atari 2600. Yeah. That was a classic was title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that along with River Raid are two of my favorite Atari 2600 titles, but there were people who didn't like it because it had a repetitive gameplay. Activision's early days there. Um, Super Mario 64, another game that got great yeah, reviews. I remember uh, that being But we got popular. some votes for that. Uh, Microsoft Combat Flight Simulator, which again, I don't really think of as a game. It's yeah. a flight simulator. And flight simulators, by their very nature, tend to be very, very complex and sometimes overwhelmingly so mm-hmm. because they are trying to be so true to life. And yet you're 
using a different interface to control that vehicle than you would if you were in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. So there's a extra layer, layer of complexity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So that got the votes. Also, we got some votes for Call of Duty and Modern Warfare, which mm. that was kind of interesting. Um, so not everybody agrees, obviously, on what is the worst game of all time, although overwhelmingly E.T. ran away with this. Yeah. Like, the, it, the, it was... It wasn't even close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> E.T. had way more votes than all the others combined. Wow. Um, but uh, like I said, 29% of all the votes that we received for everything went to E.T. He galloped everywhere he walked. Did you? Yes, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Did you have any game? Well, you mentioned the, what was it? The, the Sword, Sword Quest series. That was, that was a pretty could, bad one. There was supposed to be a contest. Yeah. If you solved all four parts of it. The fourth part never came out, and the third one got limited distribution. But I couldn't see the point of doing what you were supposed to be doing. Right. It, I mean, I just really couldn't follow the, the sequence. Yeah, I think I have to say that out of all the ones I've I've mentioned, E.T. is probably the the one I think of as the worst that I've ever personally played. Mm-hmm. I've played a lot of really bad games, but I tend to forget them because... I have access to more games now. So if I play a really bad one, I just switch and go to a good one. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't leave as big an impression on me. Back when I was a kid, my options were somewhat limited. And so I would play a bad game over and over because it's what I had. Ah, uh, you poor thing. I know. Here I am complaining about video games. Oh, poor me. I have to play a game. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't cry for me, Argentina. All right, guys. Well, this wraps up our first crowdsourced uh, episode of Tech Stuff. We'll probably do more of these in the future. Maybe we'll do one on the best video game of all time. But we'll also probably look at other elements, things that have nothing to do with video games at all. We'll ask your opinion and we'll report the results. Uh, We might actually guide it a little more in the future just so that way – you know, you don't have such a wide field to choose from because with a, with with such a huge number of options, it is hard to tabulate votes. We had a lot of things that only had one vote. Yeah, because you know it was an obscure game that one person knew about, and it's a truly terrible game, so it had merit for this list, mm-hmm. but not enough people knew about it to vote for it. So we might narrow it down a little bit next time just to make things easier on everybody. Uh, if you have suggestions for any episodes you would like to hear as a crowdsourced episode, something that you think would be really interesting and you kind of you're curious what other tech stuff listeners have to say about it, let us know. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 